0: Good morning, Linworth. Good to see you guys. Great to see you. Boy, I, too, thank you to the band. Really great to focus on God's love this morning. Okay. Yeah, like Nick said, we're going to start again with The Grounded Life, our second edition through the book of Proverbs. Hey, I thought I'd mention, um, we talked to you last week about Jane Albrecht, and as we uh, emailed out, she did pass away on Sunday afternoon, and so please keep Dave in your prayers. And it's a great loss for both him and for our their small group, for our church. And encourage you. And we'll let you know. Dave is going to be. Dave is planning a memorial service, so we'll let you know on when that's going to be. So keep certainly Dave um, in your prayers for that that, that loss. Um. Well, again, on this pursuit of wisdom, I'd like to begin with some really insightful words from Ray Ortland, who I appreciate his commentary on Proverbs. He, again, gives us reason on why, why we need Proverbs. Here's a couple of things that he says. He says that in our daily lives, we need more than rules. Sometimes life is too complex for a simple rule. We need wisdom to fill in the blanks, moment by moment. And we get that wisdom through the book of Proverbs. But we need wisdom for another reason. It is possible to live by all the rules and be ugly about it. Um, Wisdom, and we, we have all known people in our lives who have led a blameless life in their own kind of way, and we've disliked them. But wisdom will bestow on you a beautiful crown, according to Proverbs 4, verse 9. Ortland says in another place about wisdom, he says, What if we have advantages in this life but not wisdom? If we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best of intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. In July of 2006, the world-famous geneticist William French Anderson was convicted of child molestation charges. In a press conference, his attorney said, nothing about having a 176 IQ means you have good judgment. Wisdom is the grace of Christ beautifying our daily lives. Ephesians 1 verses 7 and 8 says that God through his grace, God gave us his grace and lavished his grace on us with all wisdom and insight. Colossians 2, 3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ is called the wisdom of God. This is why we need wisdom. But I thought I'd ask this question before we go much further. Is it obvious to anyone exactly what wisdom is? Because we have in our culture contemporary wise men who dispense wisdom and maybe they have created our pictures of wisdom. For example, one of our culture's modern wise men is Yoda. And Like the Proverbs, he too speaks in small, bite sized, pithy, uh, miniature pictures of reality. For example, you must unlearn what you have learned. Do or do not, there is no try. And of course, the most famous fear is the path to the dark side. Say it along with me if you know it. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate. And hate leads to suffering. By the way, if you ever want to grasp the quasi-religious undertones of Star Wars, you must take Cory Bacher's world religions class. It is a must. Put that on your list. Another wise person in our culture is Dilbert. And the Dilbert principle, Scott Adams offers his usual blend of sarcasm and irrefutable wisdom in Dilbert's laws of works. For example, don't be irreplaceable. If you can't be replaced, you can't be promoted. Have to think about that one. When you don't know what when you don't know what to do, walk fast and look worried. All right. Or, everything can be filed under miscellaneous. If it wasn't for the last moment, right, nothing would get done. And this last one I like. Eat one live toad the first thing in the morning, and nothing worse will happen to you the rest of the day. (laughs) And lastly, this was a little older, but the sage Yogi Berra, former New York Yankees baseball player, had a lot of wise, pithy sayings. He demonstrated his linguistic gymnastics in a graduation exercise at Montclair State University, uh, close to his home in New Jersey. And these quotations ended up in Bartlett's familiar quotations. Here's five things he said. First, never never give up, because it ain't over till it's over. Second... When you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> Third, don't always follow the crowd. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Fourth, stay alert. You can observe a lot just by watching. Now, that one actually makes sense, right? That's actually a pretty good thing to say. But then is fifth, the most famous, fifth and last, remember that whatever you do in your life, of it is half mental. (laughs) I love them, I just love them. But seriously, we do need to go back to the Bible to define what wisdom is and to follow what wisdom is. So here's what I wanna do today. This outline is in the Bible app. Three things we wanna cover, three questions. One, what is wisdom? Two, who grows to be wise? And three, how can I discern God's wisdom versus natural wisdom? And then we'll comment a little bit in what happened this past week in our nation's capital. on that last question. Let's pray. Let's pray and talk to the Lord. Father, this morning I pray first for myself that I could be a faithful steward of what you've given, Lord. And I would fulfill the trust that you've given me with humility and grace. Father, I pray for my friends who are listening that you would empower them to attune their hearts, to hear what you desire to communicate to them this morning. God, you speak to us through your words. You impart your life and power through your words. And mold us to be like Jesus. So we pray this morning, Father, that we would become more like Jesus. And for anyone, Father, who's never connected with you in a relationship, as Nick said earlier, they've never known your love in their lives. This morning, might they open their hearts as if for the first time, to you, and receive that great love of which nothing can separate us from. Father, we give you our lives as a sacrifice this morning. Thank you that that's your desire. It's your desire. And you don't, Lord, a broken and contrite heart you do not despise. We thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Okay, you ready? Let's start in on this first question. What, What is wisdom? Last week, we began to define wisdom using the illustration of a puzzle, saying that the individual pieces of a puzzle are like bits of knowledge. And wisdom is the ability to take the right bits of knowledge, discard what isn't needed, and then to fit them together into a single whole. This is how wisdom works. Wisdom involves the integration of knowledge, putting the puzzle pieces together. Now, integration infers an integer. You math people know what that is. An integer is a single, undivided whole. From integer, we get the word integrity. Meaning that there is an inner consistency that holds the pieces of my life together. Wisdom, thus, leads to integrity. Now, building on that illustration, the next question must be, what is the relationship between wisdom and knowledge? Is knowledge unimportant? We've already demonstrated that you can have knowledge without wisdom. But it's also true is that you can't have wisdom without knowledge. In our life group this past Wednesday, one of our members had an excellent illustration of this. He said that a neurosurgeon must begin with lots and lots of training and knowledge before he or she can operate. Years of schooling, Years of training, years of mapping and understanding the brain. If someone is operating on your brain, you want that person to have an encyclopedic knowledge. When I was six years old, I had a uh, literally had a traumatic head injury, and the emergency operation was performed within hours and it was critical. And my parents were very comforted knowing that our surgeon was a well-reputed, well-known surgeon. I can't recall his exact specialty, but uh, uh, they knew he was an individual, a man of knowledge and a man of great experience. That was very comforting. Knowledge in the context of a brain surgeon involves a right view, a correct view of the regions of the brain, their interconnectivity, their function, their pattern, their normality, how and why they work together. It involves a correct view of the brain uh, holistically, its overall function, what must happen for it to stay connected to the rest of the body's systems. And I'm sure I am barely scratching the surface for what a brain surgeon must know. Well, you and me, we also need a correct view of the world. But our challenge is not operating on a brain. Our challenge is relationships. A knowledge of relationships. Where do we get a correct knowledge of the world? Of relationships, of patterns, of functioning, of interconnectivity, of the sources of life. Well, look with me at the introduction of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. Arguably the theme verse of proverbs where do we get a correct view of the world it's all encased here in this one pithy profound saying proverbs 1 7 the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction fear of god Fearing God is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing God is like having the sun come up. It was great to see you this week, by the way. (laughs) Fearing the sun is like having the sun come up and splashing light all over the hills. And now you can see how the world actually functions and performs. Knowledge is imperative as the beginning point in the way of wisdom. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, Proverbs 3.7 indicates that it's an awareness of our limitations in respect to knowledge and affirming our smallness and God's greatness. Proverbs 22 points to the fear of the Lord as becoming humble before Him. Proverbs 15.33 indicates an openness to Him, an eagerness to please Him and to be instructed by Him. Genesis 22.12 says the fear of the Lord is surrender to His will. This relationship with God is what enables us to see true knowledge of how the world works. And as the Proverbs unfold, they show us how to live within that created reality. Just like we cannot ignore gravity without a grave cost, we cannot create a reality outside of God's created order and expect not to suffer the consequences. We will see that Proverbs calls the man or woman who thinks they can resist the true nature of the world and succeed. Proverbs calls that person a fool. Says it is folly. It is foolishness. Knowledge begins with seeing God as creator, that he is perfectly good, that he desires harmony between him, the physical creation, and humanity. It flows from this basic knowledge that the commands, instruction, and counsel from Scripture teach us how to live in this world successfully. Guess what that Proverbs calls that person. That is the wise person. Sin is ignoring or disobeying those commands. Sin is going against the grain of your true nature, of your true self, what you were created and designed for. When we sin, we actually resist God and the created order, and we sin against the physical world. Nature itself testifies against humanity since the delicate rhythm in the cosmos has been upset by our rebellion. In mirror Christianity, C.S. Lewis identified this, writing this. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see that something is above you. So, let's circle back to the question that we've been trying to answer. We've been hovering around it. Let's go ahead and land the plane. Because we, we, we had to first answer this question. Before we could define wisdom, we had to first answer the question, what is the relationship between wisdom and wisdom? And knowledge and going back to the illustration of our neurosurgeon we saw that wisdom begins with a correct view of things but that knowledge is not enough the knowledge must be applied it is wisdom it is wisdom that provides the empowerment and the skill to apply the knowledge just like the surgeon all the book knowledge in the world about the brain will not help you if you do not have any wisdom or experience to apply it in real-life surgeries. Same with us. Same with us. Though, again, our challenge is not operating on brains. Our challenge is loving people. Our challenge is building strong friendships and marriages. Our challenge is teaching our children, or providing for others, our love-making, our excelling vocationally, or contributing good to the world, and most of all, loving God, to whom we've been designed to be in relationship with. So here is a definition of wisdom. Wisdom is a correct view of the world applied to core relationships. Wisdom is a correct view of the world applied to core relationships. You see, this definition helps us to see that wisdom is not divorced from relationships. Wisdom is not little rules or tips helping me succeed independent of being in relationship. Wisdom is empowered to make us be relational to God first and then to one another. So, that's our first question, what is wisdom? A correct view of the world applied to core relationships. Let's go to the second point, who grows to be wise? Who grows to be wise? If if wisdom is so great as you've been saying, if wisdom is so desirable, then why isn't everyone in the world pursuing wisdom? Why are there so, uh, so, few people that are truly wise I know this may come as a surprise to you and I want to I want this truth to hit softly but you were not born wise nobody is born wise it is not an innate gift or quality it is not automatic and yet why is wisdom so hard to achieve again look at the introduction to Proverbs for an answer to that question in Proverbs 1 verse 2. It says the Proverbs are for gaining wisdom and instruction for understanding words of insight. Now circle that word instruction. This word instruction also carries with it the idea of two not so popular words. Correction and discipline. Yes, Wisdom comes through receiving correction and discipline from the Lord, or if we don't listen from circumstances. We are naturally sinners, and without a resisting force, we are bent on pleasing self. We are bent on being the sun and compelling others into our orbit. Wisdom thus must be gained, or more specifically, it must be received. This is the crucible for gaining wisdom. We must be in a discipleship relationship with Jesus and others. By that I mean God and others can speak into my life. I'm not above that. By that I mean we have an eagerness and an openness to be instructed and to be corrected. Others can teach me. They can warn me. They can challenge me. They can correct me. Are you open to being corrected? Am am I open to being corrected? This is the pathway to wisdom. If we are ever to be wise, we need an open relationship with Jesus and with others. And we need, all need wise friends, teachers, pastors, counselors, parents to help us on this journey from self-orientation to the place of selflessness and wisdom. Again, Proverbs 1.3 says, the Proverbs are for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair. Now this word prudent is actually a really cool word and we're gonna spend a whole week on it uh, later on in the series, it is super applicable to today. Um, suffice to say today that it does not convey what we typically think of when we hear the word prudent. We think of someone uh, tight-lipped and overly rigid. In its context here in verse 3, think of it as being shrewd or wise dealings, someone not easily led astray. Let's go to our final question. How can I discern God's wisdom versus natural wisdom? Such a key question for today, and, and again, I want to comment a little bit about what's happening in our, what's been really happening in our culture for a long time. You can turn your Bibles or devices, we'll have it on the screen, to James chapter 3. It's really cool. James is an interesting parallel to Proverbs. If you read James, you'll realize that, wow, a lot of these actually sound like Proverbs, and it uh, appears that James was influenced um, in the reading Of them. And James describes two kinds of wisdom at work in the world a natural wisdom and a spiritual wisdom. And then he lists their fruits or he lists their outcomes, suggesting that the two wisdoms on the face of it are hard to discern between God's wisdom and natural wisdom. So he provides a test, he gives a test to evaluate whether it's God's wisdom or the wisdom of the world. So let's read this passage. Who is wise and understanding among you? James asks. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." So it is evident that some things have the appearance of wisdom. Do you remember when Jesus was on his journey to Jerusalem, facing the headwinds of the cross? And after Peter proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus next then predicts his death, upon which Peter rebukes him, (laughs) suggesting such suffering does not befit God's chosen one crosses, Lord, don't qualify for success. But Peter's wisdom was not God's wisdom. Suffering humiliation, being regarded as a despicable criminal, dying a torturous death, did not, in God's economy, invalidate wisdom. God's wisdom is different. God's wisdom crucifies the self within that is bent on resisting God and putting self and material needs and comfort first. When we become Jesus followers and participate in Christ's death and resurrection, which by the way, Chris Old's Faith Walker's message on this subject was incredible. I encourage you to, to listen to that. It's very good. He described that participation in the death and resurrection of Christ powerfully. When that happens, new life or new fruit is produced in us. God does that. Things like peace loving and mercy and impartiality. Dying to self and anything we might cling to for security or control is the way to God's wisdom and it is upside down from the wisdom of the world. You see, the world's wisdom never requires such a crucifixion. No, it tells you the opposite. It says, keep your needs first and paramount. So though it appears wise, it seduces with temporal worldly success. And when followed, our old nature, who's not been crucified, continues to rule us. And thus, chaos and division and disorder are unavoidable. In the book, Pilgrim's Regress, again by C.S. Lewis, he says, the pathway of wisdom leads through a valley. And he says, and he wrote, and what is that valley called? We now call it simply Wisdom's Valley, but the oldest maps mark it as the Valley of Humiliation. You know, in our political turmoil, we can try to apply this James 3 test to what's happening in our culture. In our political turmoil and, and the chaos that we've experienced for quite some time, now more than ever, we need men of wi- and women of wisdom. And discernment and sound judgment for the times that we are living in. What are the times that we're living in? Writing a generation ago in 1996, Andrew Greeley, a Catholic priest and sociologist, documented spiritual illiteracy among the American masses. Greeley studied young adults coming into their 40s in the last decade of the 90s and theologian david mckenna recorded uh, Greeley's conclusions from this study and he wrote this this is the first generation in american history to come into adulthood and into the child rearing years without a word of scripture in their minds without a verse of him in their hearts without a memory of prayer in their homes. And friends, keep in mind, that was a generation ago. Louise and I watched an old Hitchcock movie last night called The, uh, the Wrong Man, and unlike Hitchcock's normal thrillers, it was based on a true story. And uh, in the story, by the way, it was, a, it was Pastor Nick's recommendation, which his recommendations are always good to go by. And in this story, there is a man who is falsely arrested, and subsequently his life begins to fall apart. And at his mother's urging, he finally prays, and and following his prayers to Jesus, and the movie's quite clear on that, after the prayers comes the breakthrough, comes the opening up of justice and freedom for him. Now, There were lots of things wrong in our country in the 50s and 60s, but one positive was that there was a spiritual life was cast all throughout the culture. And the movies of the 50s and the early 60s, you watch them and you'll see uh, episodes like what was on that movie scattered through much of what Hollywood produced in that era. But that spiritual center is no more that spiritual center has collapsed. The collapse of a spiritual center now a generation removed has given rise to the events of this past week, and in reality, the entire summer. And friends, I I know that for many of you right now, your emotions from what is happening in our country are raw, They are visceral, they go from disbelief, to anger, to tears. And I know that this is the challenge that we, uh, that you all don't share the same perspective on how to interpret these events. Many of you are angry, and yet you're angry for different reasons. And I'm aware of that, and I'm empathetic, certainly, to that and certainly makes pastoring in the age we live in quite a challenge. I'd like to try to provide some perspective on what we've experienced and hopefully some comfort. You know, I do my best every Sunday to represent all of the elders. But of, of course, in a scenario like this, when something must be said, there simply isn't the opportunity to work on it together. So it is better to take this these comments as my own. And indeed, the goal of our body is to learn together from these experiences. And staying in a humble and learning mode is critical, since as we try to interpret historical events from Scripture, we are still moving into a gray zone that is removed several degrees from the Scriptures themselves. So we must remain humble and stay in a mode of learning. So with that qualification, what can I say to give perspective as one of your pastors? First, it seems clear to me that for those protesters who broke ranks and chose to f- flagrantly break the law on Wednesday by storming our capital, something that has not happened since 1814 and that by British invaders. Overrunning the poorly trained and poorly outfitted Capitol Police, one officer died from the injuries he sustained. It required armed resistance. What happened Wednesday was horrible, and it was terribly wrong. It was traumatizing to watch. And the condemnation justly has been nearly universal. We spoke out, I spoke out against the rioting and the looting and the burning of our cities this past summer by mobs that exploited peaceful protest. We've said that is the wrong way to address grievances. What happened on Wednesday in principle, the seizing of power by unlawful means fails on the same account. The collapse of a spiritual, in our culture, the collapse, the utter collapse, of a spiritual Godward center, where God is worshiped, where eternal life is seen as life's destination, has led to a post-Christian secular state where political power is idolized and regarded as the pathway to self-salvation for it must be seized or maintained at any cost. The wisdom here of the world says the means do justify the ends. The media and politicians on both sides are guilty of stoking these flames. Yet the reason their words are flammable, the reason their words are flammable is because people's hearts are ghost-like. They are a void of a spiritual center that other counterbalance to worshiping at the feet of political power. Perhaps we should not be surprised that politics has been idolized by extremists both on the left and on the right. Their wisdom, the wisdom of the world for these, requires headline grabbing events and stunts, outshouting the opposition, repeating lies enough until people believe they are true, and intimidating police officers and others in lawful authority. This is not God's wisdom. Going back to the James test, it is not peace-making. It does not reflect mercy. It does not reflect impartiality by listening humbly to both sides. Rather, it has produced chaos and disorder and division. We saw that in Washington this past week. We have seen it in our cities throughout the summer. How do we discern God's wisdom in these days? By examining the fruit, by the test of Scripture. So, I have just a few more things to say about this, but something I would, before Making another point, I I just would like to say something else, not so much about politics, but more about our relationships. We have, in our community, black members. We have black brothers and sisters across the city and across the country. And for some, I can't say for all, because I do not know their hearts. But within that crowd that stormed the Capitol, there were racist emblems displayed. Walter Kim, in his statement for the National Association of Evangelicals, noted this. There was the erection of a noose, for example, a symbol of absolute terror in the black community, and the parading of a Confederate flag through the Capitol hallways. Now, whatever your personal view of the Confederate flag is, for many of our black friends, it represents decades and decades of misery, and subjugation. This week, if you have a black neighbor or a black friend, you will, or a black person you work with, you'll win a friend if you say, tell me about what you experienced on Wednesday and just what it meant to you. You could maybe win a friend by just listening and trying to understand. You know, two important dates. Two important dates surface during the month of January the the birthday of Martin Luther King and Sanctity of Life Sundays, we just mentioned. My friend, and many of you, a friend to many of you, Pastor Jack Stockdale, pastors of a network church on the east side, has said that abortion and racism are America's two greatest evils. That's something to ponder. Um, And in actuality, they are very related. Both racism and abortion strike at the very heart of one of our most fundamental understandings of the Bible. And that is the sacredness of life and the inherent dignity of every human being because they are created in the image of God. A Christianity Today editorialist recently penned this, the anti-abortion cause and the anti-racism cause are sibling abolition movements that protest two different cultures of exploitation and devaluation. I think, friends, if we could appreciate the evil of each of these and how both devalue and exploit, it would build bridges between us because it's the confrontation of these two evils in public policy that is right now greatly dividing the church. And I'm not going to argue for the rightness or wrongness of either position. Um, It's still obviously debatable. But if we could just understand that based on where you grew up, based on the community you grew up in, you may prioritize differently these two great evils within your heart and within your experience. So you have this reality of where two Christians who absolutely love Jesus Christ and they could spend a day together talking about this book and going through a statement of faith and realizing they believe in all the same things. And they, after a day of fellowship, feel a a, a spiritual family love erupting in their hearts. But when they walk into the voters booth, they vote for two different people. Now again, I'm not going to argue the rightness or wrongness of that this morning. But what I want to say is that if we could at least understand the perspective of where we come from, it will build bridges of unity. And friends... That is what the world is leaning on us to do, is to build bridges of understanding and unity in this day. Listen, friends, no other institution is going to be able to stay together in the tribal uh, uh, cancel culture we're living in. We've got to find a way to do it. We've got to find these ways to build bridges of understanding. Some of it's just having knowledge, some of it's just having exposure to why people think differently. Why believers who love Christ with all their hearts wrestle with these things. Let's take a moment. I, I'll do just a, like a one minute recap of our message. But let's take a moment. I think the appropriate thing to do right now would be to pray for our nation. And as it's at this critical time, stop and pray according to 1st Timothy 2, to pray and to ask God to lead and guide. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you as a community, one sliver of your kingdom, one outpost of your kingdom, trying to work together with others to see Jesus revealed, to see the kingdom proclaimed in all of its glory and beauty and grandeur and fullness. And we pray, Father, that even in this day where there could be so many distractions, we believe, Father, we are concerned for the political soul of our country. But Father, may we not be distracted from our main duty and our main role to proclaim the kingdom, to make disciples, May we give our hearts to that. And Father, we pray this morning. We have prayed in the past for every president. We pray this morning for president-elect Joe Biden. We ask you, Father, to bless him. And we ask you, Father, to, to lead him. We ask you, Father, to bring people into his life and into his world that will influence his heart, that will preserve the freedoms for us as believers to live our lives in peace and quietness and dignity. Lord, bring people into his life that will help him determine an agenda that will preserve our right to communicate Jesus to the world. Because, Father, your heart is that every single human being in this world would be connected to your heart and would hear the story of Jesus. And so we pray for him. We pray for our leaders, Lord, in many places, locally, nationally, that you would work your perfect will through them. Father, we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, we trust you. We lift up this nation to you. Father, we've been traumatized through all that we've seen and experienced. Father, we, we've been afraid. We are worried, Lord. We are concerned. We see our cities burning. Father, we see our very nation's capital breached. Father, sometimes we don't know where it's all going. And so we put our trust in you this morning. We put our hope in you. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return and restore the world and remake the world. According to his promises. In his name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. What is wisdom? Wisdom is a correct view of the world applied to core relationships. Who grows in wisdom? Those who are in a discipleship relationship with Jesus and others. And how do we discern God's wisdom versus the wisdom of the world? By examining the fruit. Let's stand for blessing. Linworth, through the Holy Spirit, may we abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that we may be able to discern what is best, that we may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. 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 Go in peace.